You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, everybody. Great to be with you. First service, I think when the beat dropped, somebody said, okay. <laughs> okay. Is right. Well, hey, today is camp day. We got 124 uh, students, high school, middle school, going to camp along with maybe 15, 20 counselors from here. And like a dozen of our staff are going to be there or are already there. So it's going to be a big week. Of course, we've received an offering for that. You all know about that, or many of you do. And we'll take a moment to pray for them at the end. All right. But let's get into our time in God's Word. It's going to be today. Our scripture reading will be from Ephesians chapter 3. You can follow along on the screen. I'll be your reader. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and all God's people along with the Apostle Paul said, amen. I know this is about to seem perhaps like a serious way to start. And when I ask the question I'm about to ask, it may especially seem that way. I know this question I'm about to ask may throw some of you off just a bit. But hang with me because I think the question I'm about to ask is an important question to ask because it not only gets to the heart of the passage we just read, but it gets to the heart, I think, of the human heart. It gets down to the center of who you are and who we are and maybe who we ought to be, most of all. So here's my question. Who would you go to prison for? Who would you go to prison for? Morgan, are you asking me, who my ride or die is. <laughs> it would be kind of, but this is a little more than that. Who would you 
go to prison for? You're like, well, that just got real. And I would say, I know, I told you it would. Now, maybe your wheels are turning at this point when you were asked, who would you go to prison for? Because you might be thinking, well, okay, I'd go to prison if I had to for my kids, although the jury's still out on that one, you know. Uh, but, you know, if you've got kids, maybe you're thinking, you know, you, you, you're likely having thoughts about how you might respond. If someone did something especially despicable or awful to them, you've had to think in the past uh, about how far you might have to go to protect your kids or your spouse or maybe a parent or your best friend. And sometimes maybe even you've thought this, I don't care if what I did may not have to go to jail or prison, I'd do it. I'd do it to to protect them, to do what it took to stand up for them and defend them. So again, who would you go to prison for? Is there anyone you would lose your freedom for, your reputation for, because it just didn't matter. You, you loved them so much, you'd rather suffer for a lifetime than allow them to. Now, again, I know it's a, it's a serious question, but I think it's, it's kind of clarifying. And now, I'll bet almost all of you If you had a person, if you went down the trail, if you thought about the kind of person you'd go to prison for, you thought about this kind of person. You almost certainly thought about someone you loved or someone who loved you. Like the person that you thought you might, if you had to, go to prison for, you thought it'd be someone who you loved or someone who loved you. But I'll bet Almost none of us, maybe literally none of us, thought about going to prison for, suffering for, losing our freedom for, for the sake of someone who hated us. For the sake of someone who hated us, would you go to prison for the sake, for the cause, for the love of those who hated you? In Ephesians 3.1, Paul says this, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, for a Jewish person like Paul and his, uh, his fellow country people, the, the world was neatly divided into two ethnic groups. It was Jews and everyone else. <laughs> everyone else. And the Jews hated the dirty, pagan, polytheistic, unclean Gentiles. And the Gentiles hated the self-righteous, arrogant, moralistic, uptight Jews with their laws and their customs and their invisible God. But Paul says, I'm in prison not for the sake of someone who loves me, for the, but for the sake of those who hate me. Why? Why would he do that? Like, why would anyone do that? And if we can see the answer to that question, I want to tell you, we can see and understand exactly why the gospel of Jesus Christ matters right now in our nation, in our city, and in our church. In the summer of 1954, a fascinating social experiment took place just to the north in the great state of Oklahoma. Anybody from Oklahoma here today? Okay, a few folks will uh, just admit that in public. Okay, I'm kidding. All right. Um, God bless you all. Prayer team at the end. I'm kidding. Um, Oklahoma, 1954, 22 fifth grade boys agreed to participate in what became known as the robber's cave experiment. They were divided up into two groups, 11 boys each, and for the first week, each group just spent time with its own members, oblivious to the fact that another group existed. Uh, One group named themselves the Eagles. Another group named themselves 
The Rattlers, yes. The second week, each group finally learned of the other's existence. Even having never laid eyes on the other group, they both began to label each other with words like this, the outsiders, the intruders. And if you're thinking this kind of sounds like one of those episodes of that old 2000s TV show, Lost, well, you wouldn't be wrong. Okay, uh, first service got that. Second service, you're like, well, it's, way, it's way too old. It ended in like 2015 or something, but... Just imagine third service. Anyway, people are just going to strike that one. All right. But when the psychologist arranged a first meeting, which was a baseball game, one of the Eagles immediately called one of the members of the Rattlers a dirty shirt. No way. I know. These are like 1950s fifth grade insults. Yes. Uh, but by the second day, both teams were regularly name calling using words like bums cheaters, ultimately pigs. They even stopped associating with the other side. Some got kicked out of the games, but still sat on the sidelines hurling insults. And over the next few days of week two, it all got worse. The Eagles made a flag, this flag taunting the Rattlers. Here's a photograph of it. It's the Eagles flag. You can see the eagle in the bottom corner stomping the snake just to let them know what was going to happen. And because the Eagles made this flag taunting the Rattlers, Guess what the Rattlers did? They made a flag taunting the Eagles. So guess what the Eagles did? They burned the Rattlers' flag. The Rattlers raided then the Eagles' cabin in the middle of the night. So the Eagles raided the Rattlers' cabin in the middle of the day. One side found trash on its side of the beach that was on a lake where they were. They blamed the other side for it. Only to remember later, oh yeah, it was actually our trash. When each side started to collect and they began to pick up rocks to beat and assault the other side, the adults finally intervened and decided to, quote, stop the interaction to avoid possible injury. And they sent the boys back to their separate camps. See, just two weeks in, complete strangers were turned into warring tribes. And if you're thinking now this sounds like this book, the Lord of the Flies, yeah, you're right. That book was based on this experiment. By the start of the third week, all objective reality about the other group had been lost. Each boy, in another experiment, was asked to gather as many beans off the ground as possible. They collected the beans, took a photograph, put it up on a slide, <clears throat> on a projector, and each side was asked to judge how many beans they saw on the screen. And always, each side had overestimated how many beans someone from their side had gathered, and they always underestimated how many beans someone from the other side had gathered. And the irony was the photos that were shown always showed the same amount of beans, no matter what. And what those researchers found was this. In almost no time, two groups of people almost instantaneously created negative stereotypes, avoided interaction overestimated their own group's abilities and armed themselves for violent conflict. Now, we like to think we're a lot more sophisticated than that today, don't we? Yeah, we're not. <laughs> and I'll give you one example showing why in just a bit. But I wonder, back in Ephesians 3, if the Jewish people thought they were more sophisticated than that, with their amazing laws and great ethics. I wonder if the Greeks and the Romans thought they were more sophisticated than all of that with their architecture, 
their literature, their philosophy, but their reality was, as Paul wrote this, the Jews and the Gentiles were really no different than a bunch of 12-year-old kids in Oklahoma hating, burning, insulting. See, the Jewish eagles (laughs) and the Gentile rattlers hated one another. But Paul says, though I was born a Jewish eagle, though I was taught to hate the Gentile rattlers, I am now in prison for you, for the sake of the Gentiles, for the sake of the side that hates me. Why? Why would Paul do the opposite of what even researchers say comes naturally to the human heart? Well, you can find the answer, the clue to that in that first line again alone. Ephesians 3, 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner, oh, of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. See, Paul says, I'm not actually a prisoner of Rome, as if. I'm not a prisoner of Caesar, or Israel, or United States, or Canada, or Mexico. First, he says, I'm actually a prisoner of Christ. I'm wearing the chains of Christ for the sake of of the side that hates me. And when he says this sentence, I want to tell you, he means it. It's literally true. He wasn't just in prison in general. He was in prison for something specific God himself had told him to do, and that Paul did. And here it is. Over in Acts chapter 20, we're told how Paul, after starting this church in Ephesus, he returned for a while to Jerusalem, uh, the capital city of the Jewish people, to give an update to the early church leaders on how his church planning efforts were going so they could learn about what God had been doing among the Gentiles. And while they were there in Jerusalem, uh, Paul had actually brought with him someone named Trophimus. He was an Ephesian citizen who had converted from paganism to faith in Christ. And again, while they're in Jerusalem, Paul and Trophimus, Paul visited the Jewish temple to pay his cultural respects. That was his legal right. But while he was there in the temple, his political and religious enemies, the Pharisees, hating what he was doing, hating he was mixing the dirty Gentiles over to his church in Ephesus, they accused him of bringing the Gentile Trophimus into their temple, which was forbidden exclusively by Jewish law. Now, Paul had not actually done that but the Jewish people had him arrested for it anyway. So Paul then was put on trial. And while he was on trial, he shared the story once more of his conversion away from Judaism towards Jesus, away from a monoethnic, monocultural faith towards a multi-ethnic expression. And then he finished his testimony on trial by rubbing some salt in the wound, by reminding those Jewish people how they had murdered and martyred an early Gentile Christian named Stephen right there in their midst in Jerusalem. And to top it all off, Paul never wanted to shy away from a conflict, concluded his testimony like this. Then the Lord said to me, this is Acts 21, 21, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that, as they say, was a bridge too far. That was more than his Jewish peers could take. Verse two, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. And in the end, the Roman authorities had to intervene and they put Paul on a ship to stand trial in Rome where he went and was left in prison forgotten about for years. And now as he writes these words in Ephesians 3, Paul was literally in prison 
for the sake of Trophimus, for the sake of the Gentiles, for insisting that all peoples in Christ could become one. And as he's languishing here in this cell, he's writing this in part to comfort his Gentile friends who were asking him, was it worth it, Paul? Paul, was it worth it to do what you did? Is it worth it to go to prison for years for the likes of us? And Paul writes back, listen, listen, y'all, I'm not just in prison for you. I'm in prison for Christ. And he goes on to tell them exactly why. In verse two, he's writing to comfort his Gentile friends. He says, surely, oh, you have heard about the administration of God's grace given to me for you. So he says, listen, remember, God put me on this mission. God gave me this task. Oh, but you should know it's not just a task, not just a mission. There's a better word, friends, to describe why I'm here. Verse three, it's this word, the mystery, Greek mysterion, made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, previous two chapters. So Paul says, God gave me not only a task to accomplish, but a mystery to preach. And it's not just any mystery, it's a specific mystery. Verse four, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul calls this mystery, not the mystery of Agatha Christie or Walter Mosley, if you know that name, great author, or Columbo. He calls it the mystery of Christ, Christ mystery. As in this mystery gets down to the very essence of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So what is it, Paul? What is the very mystery of Jesus Christ? What did he come to accomplish? Verse six, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of a body, one body, shares together in the promise He says, Jesus came to make out of all of us, out of all our different tribes and groups, one body. And he says, verse seven, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages was kept hidden in God, who created all things. So he says, I'm in prison not only for the sake of a people. He says, I'm in prison for the sake of a principle, the principle of oneness. Oneness in Christ, it was always God's plan, but it couldn't be seen until Jesus came through the arrival of someone uh, unlike us all. That's what theologians call the incarnation, the coming into the flesh, the the God-man who crossed space and time and history and came down into our world, someone who was like us in that he was human, but not like us in that he was God. Jesus came, the God-man, to make one out of all peoples. There is, as Paul wrote over in Galatians 3, no longer Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female, nor slave, nor free, for all are one in Christ. Oh, but we forget that, don't we? We forget it. We forget Galatians 3. We forget Ephesians 3. We forget the mystery. Someone by the name of Benjamin Gross. Benjamin Gross is a sociologist and a political researcher, and he writes about the paradoxical nature of news exposure 
how much news you're exposed to, and political identities in America. Uh-oh. And in 2016, he found this, quote, a large amount of empirical evidence that seems to confirm the rise of animosity among political partisans, that's people who believe what their party tells them no matter what, in the United States. Basically saying our two political sides are getting angrier and angrier and less and less connected. Okay, tell us something that we don't already know. Thank you very much. <laughs> For example, here's some of his research. 70% of Democrats and 62% of Republicans are, quote, afraid of the other party, end quote. 70% of Democrats say that Republicans are more closed-minded than other Americans, and the same amount say that the people of their own party are more open-minded than all other Americans. 42% of Democrats believe that Republicans are more dishonest than other Americans. 35% say Republicans are more immoral, and a full third say Republicans are less intelligent than the rest of America. And that amount, by the way, he said has doubled in the past eight years, and that was in 2016. And it's the same on the other side. Republicans say Democrats are more closed-minded than the rest of America. 47% say Democrats are more immoral than the rest of the country. And 46% of Republicans say Democrats are lazier than the rest of America. While at the same time, 60% say that if you're a Republican, you are harder working than the rest of America and the most politically conservative view Democrats as threatening the well-being of a nation. Wait, hang on. Both sides, afraid of each other, think the other side is more immoral. One side says, you're dumb. The other one says, you're lazy. Each side is a bunch of dirty shirts, bums, cheaters. Listen, if we're not careful, we can become just a bunch of boys on a beach boasting that our bean count is better than the other side. We're not, as 21st century American adults, any more sophisticated than 1950s boys, nor more sophisticated than first century Jew Gentile. Who would you go to prison for? Would you suffer for the other side? Would you dare to take a Trophimus from one side, walk into the capital city of the other side just to show that you and he or you and she are, are one. Now listen, that's not to say there aren't important policy differences, come on, rooted in moral differences when it comes to faith or, or, or public policy. There are differences. It's like there were important cultural differences in that day. Jews and Gentiles, they fought about what they ate. Why? Because of their moral differences. It was really important. But Paul always comes in and says, no matter what, you're still one. How many of us would say, like Paul then, we're a servant of a different vision. A servant, literally a deacon, diakonos, of a multi-ethnic gospel like Paul wrote. How many of us would say, my purpose in life is to make plain, he said, to everyone, no matter where I go, that God loves even the ones who say they hate me. Can you imagine if we did this, if we picked this vision up and believed and lived and sacrificed for the Ephesians 3 vision Paul gives us? What might happen? I think if we did this, we might just drop a lot of, maybe most of, our eagleness and rattlerness, put down our rocks, 
on social media. And because of that, something else might happen. Look at verse 10. He says, God's intent was that now. Would you say the word now? Now, through the church. Would you say the word church? Church. Now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? Oh, rulers and authority. Where? In the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells his Ephesian church that God's whole gospel mystery plan was to declare something, wait for it, to the powers, to the spiritual forces of darkness that work through people. Paul calls them all to this letter, the rulers, the authorities, the powers, uh, the forces of wickedness who seek to divide and oppress people. Humans, out of one man, God made us all, and through a second man wants to bring us all together. Paul says here, when the multi-ethnic church gathers. When the manifold, that's the word polypakilos in the Greek, it literally means multicolored. Paul says when the manifold, polypakilos, multi-ethnic church gathers, he's saying this. It preaches to the devil. Whose name, right, Diablo means divider. And see, when we gather, hear me, with people not like us, but with people unlike us, when all the Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Green Party, beautiful black, brown, Asian, Indian people, and all the beautiful SPF 50 white folks like me, we gather and worship Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Now, now hear me. Oh, we go on the offensive. We attack forces of darkness. We preach to the heavens, not what group by itself. It's when we gather and we are together. And this is why I love you and us and believe in us. Our polypakilos worship, hear me, is an act of rebellion against the powers that want to divide us. Our gathering is a religious and in a way political act of resistance against forces of division and fear and all the garbage we have pushed at us telling us we can't be one when Jesus already said that we are. And listen, the thought of that, the thought of that kind of a church preaching to the powers, dunking on the devil. That gets Paul so excited. He concludes the chapter like this, verse 20. He said, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work, not within you, within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And listen, you're feeling real good about this verse. You love this verse. I love this verse because why? This is every good charismatic's favorite verse at a prayer meeting. Like, yes, Lord. Listen, this is not primarily about getting your healing or your new car or your new house or your new spouse or your vacation. Although there are maybe, I don't know, better scriptures for all that stuff. And I hope you get all of it, praise the Lord. Invite me to all of it, especially if you go to Maui or Bali, invite your pastor. Just remember, you heard it here first, right? But this isn't about that. Because what is immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine historically and in 2023? Is it a new house? You're like, well, maybe Morgan, cost of living's gone up, you know. <laughs> what is beyond what anyone could imagine is the unity and love of all peoples and Jesus. Because as Paul says, there aren't just powers at work out there. There is a power at work in here. 
It's the power of love. Because after all, listen, there is someone who went on trial for you. There's someone who saw you, his enemy who wanted just to live for yourself, rebel against his love, rejected him. And that someone said, oh, I won't just suffer for you. I won't just go to prison for you. I will give my life and die for you. I would rather, Jesus said, suffer on a cross than see you suffer without me and apart from me. See, for the sake of love, the love that is higher and wider and longer and deeper than any other love. Jesus died on the cross for the sake of that love. He lost his freedom that we could gain ours. He was hated and cast out that we could be loved and brought in. And when you see that, hear me, and when you experience that, not just on a page, not just from my mouth, but in your own heart, it gives you the power inside to defeat all the powers outside. Hear me, listen, just your being here, your attending here, if you're new, your membership here, your financial giving here, sure, you're serving your prayers, you're being here when you feel like it. And even when your teens don't, <laughs> that's doing immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And Jesus Christ, he gets glory in his church the robber's cave experiment, there was one thing in the end that did cause the eagles and the rattlers to come together and drop their aggression. The water in the camp one day got shut off. You're like, good Lord, who's running this experiment? Yeah. But then the two groups went on a long hike to find a water tank up in the mountains. And on the way there, the boys got tired, thirsty and hot. Their canteens got empty, and when they got to the tank, the water valve itself was covered with these giant rocks. So they had to work together to move the rocks and turn the water back on. See, finding the source of life in their desperation made out of two groups, one. And in a way, that is what the church of Jesus is, what Paul said his vision was, what he was a servant and a steward of. See, Jesus, our living water, the mystery made plain is what we preach so we can find him. And out of all of us now become one body. Who would you go to prison for? Would you lose your life for the sake of those unlike you? Would you join a church hmm? with different people unlike yourself? I hope you would say, yeah, but not because of them. Maybe because of him. Jesus Christ, King of Kings. Lord of Lords, one Savior for all peoples. I hope you can say amen to that. Let me take a moment and pray for us. Lord, would you give us grace to pick up this vision and be comforted by it. Actually, be comforted by it. That's why Paul wrote it was the comfort of people. Lord, many of us ask, why are we, why are we doing this again? Why do we keep finding ourselves in this place again? Lord, standing in the gap for people unlike us. Paul says it's not even for the sake of the people unlike us. It's really for the sake of Christ. Lord, will we find ourselves able to constrain ourselves, lose our freedom, perhaps, for your sake and therefore for the sake of others.
Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.